Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So good to see you all this morning. Uh, and I'm grateful to, to God this morning to be with you on our two-year anniversary, uh, as, as Michael was saying. Two years of, of Redeemer Church. It's, it's hard to believe all that has happened has happened in just two years, but uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing what, what God has done. Uh, and not that long ago, as, as Michael was already saying, we were just about eight of us um, crammed into, into his living room, as you saw in some of the pictures, um, doing the worship and preaching from the kitchen because there wasn't room in the living room for, for all of us in there. Um, and, you know, that, that none of that is to brag about, like, you know, what has happened in this amount of time, brag on for our sake, uh, because Christ is the head of this church, or at least that is our prayer. Um, plus, I know that the Holy Spirit must be doing something, because, you know, if you just look at the three of us, we, we would have, you know, failed in this, ran this into the ground, and, and ran back to Tennessee with our, our tails tucked a long time ago. Um, but God, God is sovereign, um, and He glorifies Himself not only despite our weakness, but but often, thankfully, by our weaknesses, for His glory. Uh, and I'm feeling, I think, extra refreshed uh, this week um, after we were able to worship together with our with our brothers and sisters from uh, Fountain City Church uh, that made the trip up from Tennessee and led our service last Sunday. Uh, God is doing some some wonderful things, um, not only here but uh, but back there uh, at their church. Um, some of those guys, I don't know if you got a chance to talk to, to any of them, but God is working in, in their lives as well um, through you. Um, just It was through some of their trips here, uh, like last year. They came up and, and remodeled our one of our kids' rooms downstairs. There's a picture of what it was like before on there, too. It was terrible. 
Uh, so they did that work. Um, and even just during that trip, God worked in some of their hearts and seems to be calling them to, to much more. Um, a lot of them, like I have been uh, in times in my life, have, are just going along in life, uh, kind of minding their own business. Um, and through, through bringing them here um, and seeing what God is doing here, he has inspired some of them to possibly go out and plant a church. I don't know. We're, we're, we're just lucky to be a part of uh, going along kind of with them and praying with them um, in, what, in what God is doing in their lives. Um, they don't, some of those guys that are being called to these things, they, they don't necessarily know yet exactly what that is either. Um, but it, it's so convicting and encouraging um, to be able to hear their story, uh, stories of other believers and how God is, is getting their attention and drawing them uh, to himself. Um, and, and speaking of, of those guys, one of them, Chris Jones, who uh, I preached last week for us uh, from Romans chapter 15. Um, and Romans 15 gives us some basic instructions on the Christian life to, to build each other up, to bear with the failings of those who are weaker in the faith. Christ is the ultimate example of this. Christ did not come to this world for, for a good time uh, or to please himself. He came to save the souls of, of the weak, like us. And as all of Scripture is knit together by God himself, I, I feel that Romans 15 is, is a very complementary passage um, to our current series going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, so far in our study of the first chapter of Hebrews, we have seen that it has been all about establishing the supremacy of God's Son, Jesus. So just, just look back. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn back to chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 2. It says, His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And listen to those descriptions of Jesus there, heir of all things, radiance of the glory of God, exact imprint of his nature, imprint of, of God the Father, and he upholds the universe. And praise our Lord and Savior that he is superior to everything. That the, the earth is like his footstool. There's not a single stray atom anywhere in the universe that is out of his control. And no matter like, what our problems are in our finite life, he is sovereign over that too. But where is the author of Hebrews going with, with this first chapter? Why does the, write, the writer start this letter or, or sermon this way? And remember, this is either a letter to be read to a group of Christians or, or it's a sermon to be preached to them. And you know, if we look at uh, a lot of Apostle Paul's letters, uh, some people believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, others not. There's cases uh, for and against that. It really doesn't matter. Um, either way, it was, it was revealed to whoever wrote it. Uh, but in many of Paul's letters... Uh, it starts with a greeting and a part um, about how he is thankful for the people that he is writing it to. 
But here, the author of Hebrews just jumps straight in, headfirst into establishing glory and honor and superiority of Christ Jesus. Ultimately, though, this is meant to be a practical message, like a lot of those uh, Pauline letters, just like that, that message in Romans 15, for other believers to encourage them uh, into continued growth in their relationship with Jesus. So that is where our, our passage today in chapter 2 uh, comes. Now, chapter 1 was not simply an encouraging greeting, but was meant to establish a massive truth about Christ that can then be built upon throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, so I hope that as we, as we continue um, in our study of Hebrews, that we, we have now established this, this truth of Christ's superiority uh, so that we can move forward and then build upon those, those building blocks. Uh, so let's, let's pray, um, and then we'll, we'll dig further into, into chapter 2. God, we thank you again uh, for what you have done here in St. Albans through Redeemer Church. Uh, Lord, it is not by us, any of us, uh, that, that you have made us grow to this point. It is so amazing to see uh, the people who have, have come to you, who have grown in their faith, uh, and what you continue to do in, in all of our lives, uh, growing us closer to you. Uh, Lord, we we pray that you continue to do that in our study today and throughout Hebrews, uh, that you help us not to get complacent um, and to drift away from you. Help us to constantly be paying attention and to hold fast onto your truth. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that we can be here to worship you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I, as I often do when studying for a sermon, I looked um, into... R.C. Sproul and what a lot of other uh, theologians and commentators had to say about this passage. And Sproul in particular pointed out how annoyed he gets at times with the, the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles. Um, if you didn't know already, the, the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles were not originally there. Um, when these words were inspired uh, to, the, to the writers, he didn't, he didn't say, okay, next chapter, go to chapter 2. Uh, to put, a, put a verse stop there. Um, these were added later, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, by people to, just to help us make it, make it a little easier to reference uh, certain areas in Scripture. Uh, and sometimes those, uh, those divisions there, chapters and, and verses, don't make a lot of sense. They're kind of weird, uh, oddly placed, uh, sometimes even in the middle of sentences, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and other times... We start a chapter with the word therefore. The word therefore is, is meant to point forward to what is about to be said next, uh, but is also pointing back to the previous statements uh, that have led us to, to this next point. So simply starting at the word therefore and going forward without having these building blocks of these previous verses is a little bit like being kind of zoned out in a conversation, and then suddenly the, the person you're talk, is talking to you says, you know what I'm saying? And... And you're just left with like trying to decide: Do I just like, not in a, not in agreement? Yeah, yeah. Or admit that you weren't really paying attention. So when we see therefore, we need to make sure that we understand what what happened in, in that previous chapter, which I've already talked about some. Um, we might be tempted at first to take that that smile and, and nod route here, but but then you know if we continue in the verse, look at that look at that next phrase. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. <laughs> 
Uh-oh, we, we definitely need to make sure we're paying attention. Um, it doesn't make sense to keep pressing forward if we don't have that foundation laid for these next verses. And this is where the author of Hebrews was, was leading us uh, by first showing without leaving any room for doubt that Jesus is that foundation, that he is truly superior and everything else is in subjection to him. So now, what does it say that we should be paying closer attention to? It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the author is specifically concerned for the people that this is written to, that they not drift away, and to pay extra close attention to the message of the gospel. And why would this need to be a reminder? Do you think that the concern was that these believers would wake up one morning and decide to completely reject the gospel and to run in the opposite direction? You know, probably the concern was more for their slow drifting away. And isn't that true of, of our own sin creeping into into our own lives. We don't often decide one day to take up some big sinful habit that leads us to doubt the truth of the gospel. It's normally those little compromises that we make, one at a time, until we realize or have it pointed out to us by a brother or sister that we are way off track. Daniel Cashdollar in the back calling him out there. <laughs> he's, a, he's a pilot, um, and I've gotten a chance to ride along with him a couple of times uh, on some short flights around Burlington. Um, so I now consider myself a bit of an uh, aeronautical navigation expert. You know, I've gotten to fly a couple of times in the cockpit, um, and all of us experts, like me and Daniel, um, <laughs> we know that you can't just look at your desired course just at the beginning of your flight and then just trust that you will stay on that course. There must be continual course adjustments throughout the flight. Even a fraction of a degree off, and over time, the further and further that you get, the further and further you're getting from the actual destination. After time has gone by, you're, you should be at your destination by now, and you realize that you're miles from where you intended to be. So as verse 1 says, as we continue to navigate our lives, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The word of God in scripture is our navigation, and Christ in glory is our ultimate destination. Now, I want to be clear here that when this passage refers to drifting away, it absolutely does not mean fall away or to completely lose faith in salvation. Scripture is quite clear, and it is our belief here at Redeemer Church that anyone who, by the grace of God the Father, has a true saving faith in Christ the Son can never and will never lose their saving faith. That is made clear in passages like 1 John 2.19, when speaking of people who had once been a part of the, the church and looked like followers of Christ, but who were now not, it says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So these people had appeared from the outside to be followers of Christ. They may have even made an outward profession of faith and likely were baptized. But now they have gone out, showing that they were never truly 
Christians. They never had that inward change that can only be done by Christ. So if you have those examples of people that you know that used to be a part of the church and now they seem to not believe at all, that is specifically the type of people that 1 John 2.19 is talking about. Don't lose your hope in your salvation because you've seen people like that. Those of us who do truly have that saving faith in Christ can never lose it. It was not by your work to attain it. And not by your work or your failing can you keep it or lose it. In John 10, uh, 29 and 30, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And also in Philippians 1, 6, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that he began a good work in you, but you lost it, or he changed his mind about you. No, he will bring it to completion. I promise you that God is a trustworthy father. If he has saved you, then he is saving you, and he will save you. So please don't read into this passage and live in fear that one day you might mess up badly enough to lose the grace of God. But while as followers of Christ, we do not need to live with that fear or that dark cloud over our heads that we could potentially mess this all up and still end up in hell. We do still need to be diligent in paying attention, as verse 1 says. And verse 2 goes on to say that since the message given by angels was found to be reliable, how much more reliable then is the message of the gospel that we have received from God himself? In the Old Testament, messages from angels were considered to, to come with a lot of authority and power. It struck a lot of fear into people when they were the ones having that message revealed to them. And to paraphrase the end of verse 2, the author says that every disobedient disobedience against the old law or these commands given by angels was met with consequences. So if it was that serious of a matter to follow the instructions brought by angels, how much more serious then should we be taking the message of the gospel that was brought to us by God himself and the incarnate Jesus? And I've noticed over, over the last few years, or last year or so, like with, with my kids, uh, that they're, they're getting to a point that they're actually playing really well together without requiring as much of us to, to play along with them. And I still enjoy playing with them, uh, but it's really nice to, to be able to read a book or like, work on dinner or you know, work on something in the house and then be like, and look up and you know, see them playing over there. Uh, and... Sometimes they'll be like upstairs uh, playing together and things are going well in between their fighting. Um, and, you know, it might, might be getting close to dinner time or time to leave the house for church or something. And we have to, like one of them comes through to grab another toy um, and we have to tell them, hey, tell your, tell your brother or sister uh, that it's about time for dinner. Um, and both of our kids love telling the other one what to do. So they, they eagerly run off to do this, to go tell the other one uh, a command. Uh, so they run off, and then occasionally this works. 
Sometimes they both come down for dinner on a good day. Um, but also very often we wait for a while and neither of them come down. They, they both just stay up there. Um, or the one we, told, we sent off with the message comes back tattling that the, the one that's up there isn't listening, isn't obeying. At this point, then, me or Katie have to go up and, and give the message, hey, it's time for dinner, come on down. Um, the message in both of these cases is more or less the same. It's, it's time to come down for dinner. But they're much more likely to take the message that is coming directly from the source more seriously. And while this is not a perfect analogy of the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make, it is in essence true that, that we should ta- be taking the truth of the gospel as exponentially more serious, not less than, than they were taking the old law. And it goes on to say in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now again, don't hear me or this verse saying that even if you are a true follower of Christ and he has redeemed you from the wrath of God, that you fully deserved by taking it on himself on the cross, that you could somehow lose that. No one is snatching you out of his hand. He will bring your salvation to completion. So what then are we talking about? Well, this warning could apply a little differently to two different possible listeners here. If there are people amongst these listeners that are, that are like those referred to in 1 John that went out from us, but they were not of us, then to them, this is a warning to not continue to neglect the good news of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that there will be those who say to him in the end, haven't I done all kinds of great things for you? I was in church all the time, served regularly. But he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that is the first possible group that this is speaking to. The ones that, even though they are in a social sense a part of this Christian community, they have not had a true regeneration of their souls by Christ. And if they continue to neglect this great salvation, then they will certainly not escape the eternal judgment of hell. But then there's the second group, the group that I hope that all of us here are in, that includes the ones that are truly born again by the grace of God and redeemed by Christ. This statement is still a warning for us, but has a a different ultimate meaning. For us, it isn't a warning of damnation for not believing. It is a warning connecting back to verse 1, that we not drift away from this amazing message of grace that we receive from Jesus. And what would that grace even be worth to us, really, if, if we have allowed ourselves to drift miles away from it? We still go to church as often as we can, try to be a good Christian. But also, we don't want to let go of, those, of our old selves that died with Christ. We want to hang on to those old fun sins that aren't hurting anyone. Before long, now that we've sufficiently justified those little sins, we move a little bit further away and try to justify those new things to ourselves. Still going along as if we could hold grace in one hand 
and our old selves in the other. This is what the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, which I think intentionally is meant to be an oxymoron, uh, to point out how ridiculous the idea of cheap grace is. The grace of Christ is inherently not cheap, but Jesus paid that price for you. This also reminds me of Romans chapter 6, which says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried through, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul is saying in Romans, grace isn't cheap. Praise God that it doesn't cost us anything, but like any good gift freely given to us, if we truly appreciate it, we will cherish it and hold it tightly. We were raised to new life with Christ. There's no need to hold on to those old, dirty grave clothes anymore. Now, it was at this point in my sermon prep uh, this week that I realized I would probably be 20 to 30 minutes in uh, on my seventh point, and we've covered two and a half verses out of our nine verses today. Um, So I guess Michael's uh, long sermons are kind of rubbing off on me a little bit. Um, (laughs) But on these last six verses or so, We'll try to move a little bit uh, at a more broad look instead of breaking down each verse uh, in as much detail. As we established before, Christ is superior over all of creation, including over angels, over earth, men, all the heavens. Verses 1 through the first part of verse 3 then warned us of spiritual drift. And now Hebrews is further showing how Christ's superiority relates to the danger of our spiritual drift. Let me read uh, that again, uh, starting in the middle of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed it according to his will. In this one sentence, we are offered four ways that the gospel message given to us by Christ is superior and therefore more reliable and worthy of our attention and serious dedication than that message delivered by the angels. And first, uh, to be clear, when I refer to the message delivered by angels, I mean basically the entire revelation of the old covenant law. It was common conception for the Hebrews that while the Old Testament revelation came from God, it was delivered by angels. Uh, For example, when Stephen um, in the New Testament in Acts refers to the Ten Commandments being given to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says in Acts 7.38, the angel who spoke to him, Moses, at Mount Sinai. And then later in that same chapter, again in uh, verse 53, You have received the law as delivered by angels. So first we are to see this new message and covenant as superior because it was declared 
to us by the Lord himself. So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, the second, it says, it was attested to us by those who heard. Or in other words, the people who saw and heard Jesus firsthand have continued to preach this message. And we see in Ephesians 2.20 that Christ has set these specific guys apart, the guys that we call apostles. He had set them apart to be the foundation of the early church. These aren't just some guys who are passing around myths and legends that have become our religion today. God set these guys apart to be the foundation of the church. The third example is that God used signs, wonders, and miracles to highlight this new message coming into the world through Jesus. These miracles that we see from Jesus and later through the apostles aren't just cool tricks. They aren't magicians. The people that that were healed may have initially thought that they were seeking physical help from their, their pain or diseases. But ultimately, they, they received so, something so much more than that, whether they knew that that's what they were coming for or not. They, they were able to gain eternal life. The, the miracles and healings drew attention to Christ Now, finally, the last example of the superiority of this message is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is closely connected to the reason for miracles. These spiritual gifts, just like miracles, don't exist for their own sake. They're not used for our personal gain or enjoyment. They're used to draw attention to and testify the gospel. Now, if you have more questions about about that topic and specifically... Um, As you may know, we've recently gone through a study on the Holy Spirit. Um, So we have those recordings on on the website and on our podcast uh, to kind of help answer a lot of those questions. Uh, We do know that the purpose is to to testify that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you see someone doing something with supernatural gifts, but they're drawing more attention to themselves than to Christ, or they're saying something that is contrary to the truth that we have in the Bible, then get away from them quickly. Because these are wolves in sheep's clothing. The sole purpose of spiritual gifts is to point to Christ and Christ alone. So whether you stand that these gifts continue today, or that they have, have ceased because we have the full revelation of the canon of Scripture, It doesn't really matter. Whether it happened then, still happens now, it was intended to point to Christ. Now, for our final section of our passage, verses 5 through 9, I'm going to try to move a little bit more quickly. Um, We could easily break down each each phrase uh, for another few hours here. Um, But our main focus, the main purpose of this next section, is again to point to the superiority of Christ how he allowed himself to be humiliated for our sake, and how he is now crowned with glory and honor. So let's read a a small part of this, uh, verses 6 through 8. It says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So it starts with it has been testified somewhere. This is, we know specifically from Psalms 8. And I guess that's the purpose of the chapter and verse divisions now. Maybe the person writing Hebrews couldn't remember exactly where it was. So it has been testified somewhere. Uh, we know it's Psalms 8. Um, I'm sure that we have, have all heard or even felt ourselves that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are inconsistent. That the Old Testament God is cold, hard, and mean, while the New Testament God is embodied by this nice hippie man, Jesus. Well, if that is a person's understanding of either the Old Testament or the New Testament, then, yeah, it seems inconsistent. But both of those understandings would be incorrect and lies from Satan. Now, I would have to agree that much of the Old Testament is a little bit more difficult to read. But once you see and make the connections that God has placed in there, that all of it is pointing to Jesus, you will see it in a completely different light. Yes, the times of the Old Testament were not a time that any of us would probably envy living in. But just as shadow proves sunshine, as hunger proves the need for food, exhaustion proves the need for rest, so does the Old Testament prove and frequently point to the need for the, for the coming Savior, for the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ. The verses we just read, as I said, are from Psalms 8, written by King David. And it does what the Old Testament often does through prophecies and poetic writing, like in the Psalms. It has a double meaning, pointing to something more immediate in the time of its writing or in its past, but also quite clearly, from our perspective, pointing to Christ. Meaning that it, it does speak of Adam, which embodies all of humanity, and the dominion that, he, that we have been given over the earth. The author of Hebrews completes this connection in verse 9 by basically placing Jesus' name into this verse. And this is the, the first time that the book of Hebrews calls Jesus by name. Previously, it has referred to him only as the Son. But here it says in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while, while, while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the old law. Through his death for us, through his final ultimate dominion, with everything in subjection under him. He is often referred to as the last Adam. He completed what the first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, bringing sin into the world. One of my favorite worship hymns that we sing here says, See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. So I know that this passage might be a little confusing on its first read-through. We, start, we started talking about paying close attention to the gospel message and ended with Jesus' fulfillment of the law and his final dominion. 
But the overall takeaway should be this, that the old law was taken very seriously, but was still failed miserably by humanity. But then God himself stepped down, even below angels, to be with us, to take our place in what we deserved. Then his message was testified even more by those who heard it, by signs and wonders, and by gifts through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So we must hold tightly and pay closer attention to the message of the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So I want to end by, by praying a prayer written by a Puritan named Anthony Burgess. So please pray this with me. O oh Lord, I bless you, not only for your pardon of those sins I have committed, but also for your goodness in preserving me from those many thousands of other sins I was prone to fall into. If I could repent to the highest degree or achieve the holiness of men and angels, it could not make up the damage sin has done upon me. Who was more plunged into sin than I? Whose diseases were greater than mine? It may be that thousands and thousands of other souls are now taking their place in hell for less and fewer sins than I have committed. I do not call upon you to repeal any threat or nullify your word. I do not ask you to become unjust. But your wisdom has found out a way that I may be pardoned and you may be satisfied. Your overflowing goodness overcomes me. If only I had the hearts of all men and angels to praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.